Hello and welcome to the 27th episode of the Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Saturday the 19th of October 2019 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This week we read more of Chapter 8, Political Consciousness, talk about the importance of a functioning international and go in hard on Lenin's strategic errors. This week I have the new Patreon Benjamin O'Kane to thank. You too can help keep the good ship Alpha afloat by joining the Patreon gang gang for as little as $5 a month, which works out at $1 an episode. Patrons get special bonus episodes, the right to vote on the reading group series and other cool stuff too. When we reach 100 patrons, we'll be producing a second patron-only podcast every month. As it's the podcast's first anniversary of being on Patreon, all new patrons for the rest of the month of October will get a free exclusive from Alpha to Omega badge. They are seriously lit. The next reading group series is not too far off now, so make sure to get your copy of Marx's The 18th Brumaire of Louis Napoleon. Après McNair, Les Brumaires. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel and make sure to like, subscribe and share. You can also join me on Facebook or Twitter too. Okay, to the discussion. Okay, do you want to hit this paragraph then, Puya? The working class is an international class. It can only attain full political consciousness of its character as a class. Become a class for itself if this class is expressed in international unity of a workers' class movement. The symbolic unity offered by the Second International was less than was needed for the proletariat to take power, but still necessary for the proletariat to get as far as it got in the run-up to 1914. We can see the same phenomenon in the fate of communist and Trotskyist parties slash groups after the dissolution of the Comintern. The allegiance of the tankies to the USSR and its leadership was deformed and bastardized internationalism. But it was a form of internationalism nonetheless. The Eurocommunists, as they lost their internationalism, also lost their ability to promote any sort of class politics and became, if anything, more liberal than the Social Democrats. Like that? That's true. Yeah, yeah. that's true. That's just very true. Is it the internationalism? That's You know what I mean? Like, you could say that, like, internationalism and class politics and everything you know they disappeared simultaneously so how do you know that internationalism no no so this this is a good point and i, I let me ref, let me give it a, an uncharitable rephrasing okay that it doesn't really matter to your nation state actually i'm par- going to be paraphrasing mcnair so it's not uncharitable it's something he says elsewhere it doesn't matter to the nation state if you're betraying them on behalf of the international working class or on behalf of one of their adversarial nation states you behave like an antagonistic actor. You know, anti-revisionists often did this. They often behaved as an antagonistic actor within their state in a way that uh, social democrats, but especially not Euro-communists, did not. And this was even true to some extent to some revisionist, you know, quote, Khrushchevite, quote, communism before Euro-communism. Yeah, I think there's that that trajectory that McNair paints of like basically going to socialism in one country and then kind of directing the official communist parties abroad to just sort of pursue a national politics 
and not make waves. And that drifts progressively more and more towards Eurocommunism, right? That because there is no international horizon, revolution seems... I don't know, the, the terms of revolution begin to drift. I think it's kind of the argument he's making there. I feel like if he's kind of, like, if you're just looking at things, like, empirically, like, I forgot what the word was when, like, many things are correlated with each other. And it's like, okay, so, you know, like, what's causing what? I know what you're saying. Yeah, you're saying, Puya, that it's like the fall of the Soviet Union caused Eurocommunism, or was it the fall of the international that caused it? Yeah, you, know, you could just pick out any of these factors and say that, you know what I mean? And this was yeah, but causing... I, but, but I think that the, it's a kind of a dialectical thing where all of it is so interlinked. I think they're all multi-causal. But like, I, I think, look, I wrote some notes here at the bottom and I was trying to figure out when, I, when I'm when i reading a book, sometimes I write notes and then I come back to it, I don't understand. And I finally understood what I, I was talking about here in this note there a minute ago. It's to do with like uh, what we were talking about before, about how the, the right always has this pressure on the a left party to push to the right to the center or whatever but it, like it seems to be that if you have an actual functioning international you have a counter pressure on the left parties that are part of that international to push them to the left what are people yeah like is that not a counter acting force that we can use i don't see how like you have a national communist politics and you end up anywhere other than the right position. Right. Correct. If if your orientation is national, how do you not end up repeating LaSalle in some way? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that's incorrect, but I'm saying like his like causal arguments, you know It's not as simple as he's saying here. I think that's definitely true. That's that's true for the whole book. Yeah, I don't think his causal arguments are very good. I think it would be better if he argued like you know, internationalism is a correct position because uh, X, Y, and Z or whatever, you know, like, you know, you need an international economy to be able to produce goods efficiently and, you know, whatever reasons he gives you. But uh, yeah, his like causal arguments, I don't think are correct, usually. But but they don't like ruin the book. Well, I, I've, I've been kind of engaging with this recently because, you know, He's kind of influenced by the analytical Marxists and has a lot of stylistic similarities, um, but like, you know, disagrees with the nominal analytical Marxists. He's polemicized, you know, against them recently even. I think the word you're thinking of before is overdetermination when there's many causal factors. And is that, am I right about that? No, that's no, a, no. that's a word from uh, Althusser. There's a kind of standard Anglo philosophy of science definition, and then there's Althusser's spin on it. I'm thinking about like the statistical word. Let me look it up. Oh, okay. I think it... so. There's there's something more formal that you're thinking of. Um, yeah, but... it's like multi-corollarity or something. I don't know. Oh, okay. To general philosophy of science point, I think that there are multiple multi multiple causes to these things, but a lot of Marxists have tried to just kind of not try to do causal analysis on these things and and be correlative, and they kind of end up saying nothing. Multiple correlation. Yeah, multiple correlation. But I think like overdetermination is a different concept because overdetermination is saying like all these things like mutually determine each other. But I'm saying like he's looking at this like empirically. He's like saying 
yeah, this like empirically happened and then that empirically or like these things empirically happened, right? You can't just like look at data and like you know, it's not and just like come to no. your conclusions. Right, it's a it's a provisional hypothesis. If not, it, and your research should actually proceed, assuming it's not true, to try to disprove it to see its power. Or, yeah. but like these things are like all correlated. You know what I mean? All these things are like correlated yeah. together. So like, it's really hard to parse out what's doing what if you know all these things are happening together. If you're looking at a data and like a million different variables are correlated with each other. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, this is a challenge of social scientific explanation or any, yeah, I mean, really a lot of kinds of scientific yeah. explanation. I suppose wh what he's saying here, though, as well, is that he's putting forward the international, a causal reason for why when you get rid of what, what the power of an international is and when you take it away, what it, what would it end up happening? So I suppose he's making an argument that this correlation is the one that matters. That's kind of what he's saying. What's he says the word? He, he's think, imputing causal power to it, uh, but I don't know if he's wrong. Like I think, like what's he doing? You, uh, you, I think you, is it called right. induction? Is he is he using induction right now? Well, induction isn't necessarily like bad. <laughs> I don't know if you'd say it was induction. Well, it's not a deductive not... proof. He is he is making like a claim that yeah, it was this factor that changed this counterweight or something Let, let's not get too stuck up in it will we we kind of understand what we're saying <laughs> i don't think this i actually don't have a problem with a lot of like a lot of his causal mechanisms are only in my opinion wrong by the omission of the social layer there's a whole like broader kind of demographic kind of like a labor movement thing going on underneath that needs to be kind of discussed in more detail to get a better causal explanation. But I, I, I don't have a problem with him looking for causal explanations in this manner. Do you know what it reminds me of, Puya? If you ever, like, listen to, like, a, you know, a geneticist talking about, you know, mutations or evolution, and they'll say something like, the anteater evolved a big nose so that it could, you know, stick its nose into stuff. They'll say something, right? something and super theological. Absolutely. But, it's a but, functional but, explanation. But when they say it, they don't mean that that's what happened. They said, oh, I need to get a new nose. It's a shorthand for talking about the randomness. And it, it's done all the time in science. You know what I mean? Where they'll actually, you know, where like they'll say it in the kind of incorrect way because it's a shorthand to describe the right way. And I think that that's how I read most of these things here as well. It's like um, when Malthus created his argument, right? He was like looking of the population and the uh, I forgot what the theory is actually called, but it's the one where the population grows faster than food. You know, like he was looking at data and he was like, oh, look, like the population's like increasing and the, the food production and the population were like, he was looking at this data and they were like, you know, they were, it was doing what he was saying up in, like while he was alive. And then like <laughs> soon after, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Arguably, those trends only held before capitalism. Yeah, it's extrapolating, you know, a thing into the future. But yeah. can we can we can we go on? We've only done a page and a half, and we're getting stuck into methodology here. I'm not trying to, but I, I do think the big point for me, like in this paragraph here, is that like the international can work as a counter to that force from the right. Do people think that's a true thing, Kyle? 
Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that you're you're saying earlier that the right tries to pull the left to the center, but I I don't think that's really quite true. Like I think it's it's more the case that like the right pulls the center to the right and they don't really care about the left very much because the left isn't going to block with them, right? What the international can do is create some sort of like provisional relationships between the center and the left, and it can help the center from actually just collapsing into the right, which is what happened like almost universally. Like there's, there's very little parliamentary left politics that are not right in the world today. Yeah, and I just want to add that, you know, this is that, what he was giving there isn't a functional explanation. It's an agency-based explanation. There's nothing to compel one to go left without the international. Yeah, it's, it's super important. Even if, like, it's only symbolic, it matters that there is some kind of symbolic unity that people actually care about, right? Like, you could have, like, you know, all these Trotskyist internationals, it doesn't mean anything. But if there is this kind of, like common symbolic project it it means something like i remember during occupy you had these like little tiny demonstrations of international working class unity right like very small things like people in egypt like during arab spring buying food for protesters out in wisconsin right um and like just seeing any kind of meaningful international working class unity was like kind of shocking because it's so off the horizon and that it and 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 the degree to which like we are just trapped in the in the discourse of the right is is really really strong like yes there has been a move towards socialist politics lately but it is very much within the realm of right right socialist politics yeah the symbol of unity in the second international you know the I don't know, classical workerist identity politic is in a way like highly preferable to the Soviet Union litmus test that became the symbolic focus of the Third International and the sort of politics that came out of it. Yeah, because for obvious reasons, that was a turnoff to many, many, many workers. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't be weighing in on which one was better or worse, but they're both kinds of, I don't know, symbolic politics that don't work today. But it, they both point to the importance of symbolic unity and what it meant for those symbols to fall apart. It It is hard to deal with in materialist terms, but I think it's true. All right, here here's what I'll do, right? Send me your addresses there in the chat and I'll send you all a pizza. How about that? <laughs> International. I'm, so International. <laughs> I'm so inspired. I'm voting against war credits. Woohoo! There we go. Let's push it to the right. Let's push it to the left, motherfuckers. Sorry. Um, yeah. Pizzas. I mean, pizzas but are the like, way seri- seriously, though, it is nice to have this international conversation about yeah. left politics, right? Like, we've got Americans, you know, we've got Canadians, we've got people, we got, we got people for, like, we even have people in the chat, right? Like, it's, it's, it's nice to have because this thing doesn't happen very much. Yeah, think of all the people in New York City that I'm not talking to, including Brooklyn, right now. You should be out there giving out flyers, looking for that Patreon book out in Brooklyn right now. I, giving out know, Swampside flyers. I should be hustling at the Verso Loft. 
<laughs> Signing autographs, giving out posters, you name yeah. it. That's what you should be doing. Yeah. God damn it. You want to buy my mixtape? Well, here. <laughs> um, so like this. You this guys got to buy my mixtape. <laughs> Hell yeah. I'll buy your mixtape for you. Thanks. <laughs> Do you accept yeah. pizza? Okay, let's move on. Yeah, <laughs> Puya's mixtape is like this is a this is a refrigerator, and this track here this is a air conditioning unit, and this one over this one over here this track is a blender mixed in with the, with the, with a with a fridge and, and a microwave. Puya yeah. is trying to keep you. Puya is trying to keep you on task, and, and you're mocking his creativity. Sorry, oh, it's getting late here. It's getting late. Here. Okay, okay. Uh, let me read this one little sentence. I think it just kind of sums it up. Um, even in distorted forms, then the struggle for international unity of the working class and the struggle for working class political independence stand and fall together. And. I, I do go with that. I think that is true. Whether we'll have the statistical evidence for Puya, we, we won't know. We'll only find out, Puya, we'll only have the evidence after 100,000 failed revolutions and we can <laughs> we can get the, the stats ready for you. Yeah, I think it's like a, it's a question of theory kind of because, you know, it's not really, I don't know how you would go about like, you know, you need, you need like a good theory to be able to explain this stuff. Yeah. I, I just want to like underline how controversial this statement is, right? Like to us, it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But like, if I brought this to my local NDP branch, or like there isn't even a branch of the NDP because they don't give a shit about, you know, any having any like real membership. But like, if I brought this to my local N NDP MLA and I was like, okay, this has to be the foundation for our socialist politics, I would get laughed out of the room. Like it, it, like this is this is a really, really controversial point. It's not widely accepted at all. So it is, it is worth talking about. Very much so. Okay, now we're going to get on to this most uh, honestly. It's something that the left never talks about: Russia. So let's let's yeah. go there. Yeah, we don't have enough Russia. Russia's a country in it's in Europe and Asia. Okay, I, I don't want to give too much background. Let's just go in there. <laughs> there's bound to be a good. There's bound to be a good joke, like along the lines of, do you know the one about what's the biggest city in the world? Do you know this joke? Not no. sure. Uh, Dublin, because its its population keeps Dublin and Dublin. Oh, you know, it's, it's like it's like there's got to be a similar crap joke about Russia. Yeah, I think. Uh, that they, it, there's like some in a rush. There's some. There's some rush joke yeah. that we could so, we could splice so, in there. In which city? You know, what which city do the trains run fastest in the world? Moscow, because they're Russian. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> boom. Also made it a little fascist too. <laughs> Double boom. <laughs> I'm reading this one. Oh no, Kyle will read it. Kyle hasn't read yet today. Kyle's got to read. Sure, Kyle. sure. The Russian question. If the policy of the Second International was fundamentally one of separate national revolutions, there was an undercurrent that suggested a repeat of 1848. 
This was expressed in Marx and Engels' responses to the Russian Narodnya Volya and became current among Russian Marxists, most explicitly in Trotsky's results and prospects, but also in Lenin's two tactics. The idea was that the fall of the Tsarist regime would rapidly trigger a European-wide workers' revolution and an 1848 on a higher level. This was the view held by Marx and Engels at the time of the Crimean War, and the correspondence with the Narodniks and Russian prefaces to the manifesto revived it. It was, in fact, a reasonable but mistaken response to the defeat of 1848. Russian intervention had played an important part in 1848 in defeats in Poland and Hungary, and the Tsarist regime was one of the principal guarantors of the European regime of the Congress of Vienna and the Holy Alliance that backed it. Knocking Russia out of the picture should, therefore, let loose the national democratic movements in Central Europe, Poland, Hungary, etc., and this would bring down the Austro-Hungarian and German regimes and trigger European-wide revolutionary aspirations in the style of 1848. It was a mistake because 1815 was fundamentally a British-sponsored settlement placing a pressure lid on continental politics for the benefit of Britain. True, the Tsar, the King of Prussia, and the Emperor of Austria had provided most of the soldiers to defeat France, but the money that funded their armies had been raised and mobilized through London at the behest of the British government. The 1847 economic crisis led to the British-imposed lid being blown off all across Europe in a revolutionary explosion. The primary change that ensued, the regime of Louis Napoleon in France, freed French capital from the British-imposed chains of 1815 so that the French state could begin to compete on the military international level with Britain. As a result, in the ensuing period, Germany and Italy were driven towards unification in order to emulate France, and governments began to use or return to using war imperialism as a means to bleed off the internal contradictions of domestic politics and economics. Hence, after the Crimean War, the idea that the Tsarist regime in any strong sense guaranteed European political stability or was the policeman of Europe was illusory. In 1914-18, to 18, the point was emphatically demonstrated. Far from the Russian Revolution triggering the European Revolution, the European War triggered the Russian Revolution. The Central European National Movements then proved to be a bulwark, first of German, then of Entente policy against the Russian Revolution. The Russian Revolution did at one remove trigger revolutionary movements in Hungary, Germany, and Italy. Or it did so not by the route envisioned by Marx and Engels, that the removal of fear of Russian inter intervention in Central Europe would open the way to a revolutionary movement which would spill westwards. Nor did it do so by the route projected by Trotsky in Results and Prospects that the Russian Revolution would spill over into Germany and or trigger a collapse of the London and Paris financial markets. Rather, the perception of the revolution as a workers' revolution triggered an international radicalization of the workers' movement. This radicalization reached its highest points in the countries which could not see themselves as victors in the war, Germany, Austria-Hungary, and, in a slightly different way, Italy. Advanced workers in these countries saw a possibility of workers' revolution as a result of 1917. 
They could see this possibility because of the prior symbolic international unity of the workers' movement in the form of the pre-war Second International. When I interviewed McNair about about this stuff, these few paragraphs here were very kind of hitting to me because, you know, this would lead us to think that the gambit of Lenin and the Bolsheviks in doing their revolution was a huge strategic misstep. Yes. This is pretty related to what Puyo was saying before about the difficulty of establishing causality. Critical theorists have a, a saying they like. It's the owl of Minerva flies at midnight. Y- you, you don't necessarily like see the important causal factors unless it's in retrospect. And you're dealing with a situation where not just you know Trotsky and Lenin and not just Marx and Engels, but really the entire revolutionary tradition from 1848 forward kind of had this view of Russia as the gendarme of, of Europe. And that there's always a temptation to, I'm not going to say do induction, because you got to do some induction, you have to do some analogies to the past, but to kind of overgeneralize, overinduce, you know, like principles from the last experience as being like iron laws of your current experience. That's definitely what was at work from 1848. Yeah, I think it's kind of like the positive legacy of 1848 was the realization of the importance of the social question and the importance of an international workers movement. You know, McNair acknowledges that the creation of the international and and that sort of symbolic uh, international workers unity was a meaningful contributor to attempts at revolution at this time. Uh, the sort of negative side of it was that uh, revolutionaries took the wrong lessons about the the actual state of play of politics in Europe, uh, apart from the sort of um, political versus social question problem, which obviously, you know, was a major thing that sabotaged 1848 and... Uh, also uh, was learned from. People took kind of the right lesson from that, but the wrong lesson from what happened in terms of uh, international power politics. Yeah, and McNair laying it out like this, I mean, there's some people that are going to read this and like not get up for a couple days, just be like, whoa, I'm only familiar with the primary sources. I'm only familiar with what, you know, the big beards had to say about these things. And even if you read around the revolutionary tradition more and you're a primary source type, you're not going to find that many counter arguments to this. This is just a different history than they expected and that they thought than they thought they were living in. The actors, you know, necessarily have incomplete information. But yeah, that's what people were working with. It is tremendously sobering how wrong they got it, even considering the fact that you know, we are talking about people that did act in ways, of course, that ended up that they couldn't couldn't possibly imagine. <laughs> but yeah. um, but they did act. And so you don't have to have, like, a perfect grasp of history in order to act. <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, and I, I think, like, you know, this kind of comes out of that sort of, like, world system stuff, right? Like, I, I think that's where this kind of argument is coming from. Yeah, and just obviously that didn't exist at the time. And also, I think for me, it's like, you know, I usually look at 
Marx's biography and his like time spent as basically like a anti-Russian crank in the in the popular <laughs> press, right? Like like he he's like one of the people who would be doing like the yeah. anti-Russia stuff today. OG Russia like, Gate. Yeah, OG Russia Gate was definitely Marx's job. And I usually just kind of look at that and sort of like laugh and I'm like, oh, well, you know, everybody's got their stuff, right? But like when you think about the the degree of vitriol and and hatred <laughs> Marx had towards the czarist regime and the way that that actually kind of filtered down uh, in at strate- at the strategic level, it, it did actually have some some harmful effects. In, in meaningful ways and, and not, not just this kind of like, you know, random crankery, like the sort of unpleasant side of Marx's biography, right? Like that, that, that like this is this stuff that like he, he was all, he was really off base in a lot of the stuff he said about Russia. Um, I mean, it's partially rooted in anti-Slavic racism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and just also 1848, right? Like, like there were real experiences of, of the sort of hopes and dreams of of liberals and socialists being crushed at that time that that leaves some really deep scars a lot deeper than Hillary Clinton not getting elected you know like it's yeah. you know it was the russians <laughs> yeah Kyle you know watch your mouth watch your mouth <laughs> I'm sorry I'm, I'm sorry I'm joking please don't, don't take don't... me on to MSNBC I'm sorry <laughs> I don't know. You just laid out how we make a million dollars right now. <laughs> yeah, right. That, that's how we get our our next textbook published is we, we get our funding from anti-Russian crankery, just, <laughs> just like Daddy Marks did. Oh, boy. Oh. Seriously, you may be joking, but there's probably actually good money in that. You know, what we should do <laughs> is... Oh, I'm gonna... bring, bring back Cold War Marxism. Yeah. <laughs> What I'm going to have to do to you, Kyle, is I'm going to have to go like, uh, what is it, Clockwork Orange on you, sit you down in front of Rachel Maddow and repeat for 12 hours with your eyes, strap you down, keep your eyes open. Tom, yeah, Tom, I can't allow this to continue. (laughs) Okay, let's let, let, why don't I read this next bit? Because I really like, I really like this chapter. At first, October 1917 seemed to show that the working class could take power. This image promoted revolutionary attempts elsewhere, but the impulse rapidly ebbed. As disturbing news began to filter west, even Luxembourg in prison was hesitant. As the character of the Soviet regime was rendered more explicit in the theses of the 1920 and 21 Comintern Congresses, the ban on factions and the Kronstadt events, the majority of the existing militant left activists of the workers' movement in Western Europe took their distance from the Bolsheviks. This was reflected in the 1921 splits from the Comintern of both the larger part of those amongst the left of the Kautskian Centre who had flirted with it and the left communists, larger than they had later become. These splits foreshadowed the future. The nature of the Soviet regime was to become a primary obstacle to any attempt of the working class to take power in its own hands in Western Europe and ultimately to international class political consciousness more generally. The image of an international chain of national revolutions, starting with Russia, was, nonetheless, to be the governing idea of Comintern international strategy, and after it, that of the Trotskyists. Well, goddammit. Like, there's there's a couple of paragraphs there. Right. 
what I really like reading this book is that he he lays down, you know, five or six. Well, no, no, five or six is probably too many, but three or four massive strategic errors of Lenin and the Bolsheviks, you know, just lays them plain. And what I find difficult as somebody who's not ever had drank the Lenin Kool-Aid is that how people can think the guy is such an amazing strategist when nearly every one of his key strategies were goddamn awful. Let me let me point some of them out. One of them was changing the vote on the Brett Litovsk Treaty. So he went against what the actual vote should have been. That's supposed to be one that McNair says happened, right? Then you've got the idea that the Russian Revolution would spark off other revolutions. Wrong. Then you have... Lenin was in power when the Comintern came up with their 21 or whatever they are uh, theses which split the parties all across Europe and weakened and put all these all these communist parties into sect mode for a hundred years like to me they're just amazingly bad strategic choices and I do not understand why people think Lenin was this this head this 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 genius it just I just I just find it baffling it's all tied up with what he's saying here right that like uh the nature of the soviet regime was to become a primary political obstacle to any attempt of the working class to take power into its own hands in western europe and ultimately to international class political consciousness more generally and i think like the reason why people get so obsessed with lenin is that he became a symbol of that international class political consciousness and that was hugely destructive, but for the people who cling to Leninism, I think it's very important, right? Like, when, when I read this, like, okay, I'm coming from, like, a, you know, sort of, I guess, post-Leninist perspective. But when I read this stuff, it's hard to take a post-Leninist perspective. It makes you feel like the whole thing was a tremendous error. There's this old, like, quote by Max Weber, German sociologist. He was in, like, the SP Day, big revisionist. I mean, I don't even know if that's the right term. Anyway, he says he's absolutely convinced these experiments in, in Russia can only have and will have the consequence of discrediting socialism for the next hundred years. Oof. Oh. I'm going to channel some Chomsky here. I'm going to channel some Chomsky. Chomsky said that the fall of the Soviet Union is the best thing to happen for socialism. And he's probably in the long term feckin' right. Uh, you know? I, I, I don't know. I, I mean... Maybe in the long term, but in the short term, it was absolutely, I mean, I, but you know what? I guess if the Soviet Union was never a success, then it's, you know, it's implosion wouldn't have been so traumatic, but it's just so hard to say. It's, it's yeah, some, it some, a lot of people hear this stuff and just hear, oh, I mean, so just say, why try? Fuck it. Like, and it's no, 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 you know, glory to the October revolution and all that. But what happened from there? <laughs> like, where where was the mistake? If October wasn't a mistake, and I'm not inclined to say it was, what's the error? What do you do in that scenario? Could it be that Lenin had a good strategy for staying in power, but a bad strategy for communism? Like yeah, definitely, definitely. And like, what's the story? Like, is it's just a bad goddamn strategy? Full stop. The left was in disarray in Central Europe. How are they all going to have successful revolutions when they're all in complete disarray? Just a bad strategy. Yeah. And and so I I try to talk to people that are relatively... Well, well excuse me. 
I, I, I've been, you know, sometimes people approach me for like advice, like kind of common sense, like Leninists, you know, that are just sort of open and are just sort of taking on the revolutionary tradition. And it's just so hard to tell them that just these casual resonances will just lead you astray. And it's not because you're not trying to be radical. It's really confusing because basically the people before us were incredibly confused and just doubled down on things that have caused us a lot of intellectual scrambling, has caused us just a lot of mental damage. And there's and so much of it is the righteousness of the left and the importance of symbolic unity. I mean, they're you know they're correct, but like you can't I don't know. Scientific socialism is supposed to be something else. It can't just be like a religious fetish object that you know as like pixie dust if you believe in it and clap your hands like it'll work like the soviet union did have a sway over people as a sort of like imaginative space of non-capitalism in the world but what it really was was in a way counterproductive for the global communist prospect yeah it, it's hard to look at like the gains that came out of october in the rest of the world and at the same time acknowledge how destructive the Soviet Union was for the international workers movement. Like it's, oh, it's so hard to hold those two things in, in your mind at once. I mean, they might as well be like a parallel universe. It's so bizarre. But, you know, eventually it, it you know, the Soviet Union exports the, the brain worms, you know, like it doesn't take that long. Yeah, well, and, and this, this catastrophic falling out that he describes that happens as soon as people like, you know, as soon as workers start to learn what's actually happening in the USSR is really, really damaging, like just enormously damaging. And then, you know, what do you, what do you get later down the line, right? You get like new left stuff, which is very much confused by all of this. Yeah. It still takes on this sort of like weak chain thing as an extrapolation from the Russian experience and the Chinese experience, which, you know, very different experiences. But they, again, they were looking for that causal factor in a way that, you know, is conducive to acting, you know, and yeah, makes one pretty dizzy how wrong people got it. But again, these are the actors. These are the people doing shit. There's a, there were people that were correct, but they were like throwing tomatoes on the sidelines and no one took them seriously. Or they just like went full on reactionary, right? Right. Yeah. They lost their fucking minds. Or I mean, or they just. I mean, not even lost their minds. They lost, they, they assumed that their convictions were like incompatible with humanity because of how distorted it got. Or that they could somehow, somehow change American power to be something like what they wanted out of socialism, right? Yeah. Like there was, there were like deals struck and compromises made that, that led to sort of like what we got out of Cold War American ideology. Yeah. Well, look, what do you mean? Like, New new Deal? Great Society. Yeah, yeah, Great Society is more it. Like, and, like, post-war American internationalism, modernism, American modernism. Oh, like the Marshall Plan and the, the UN. Yeah, the UN, yeah. There, there, there are a lot of ways in which, like, socialists sort of made their, their peace with that. And, and it did influence the character of what ended up happening in America in the Cold War. But certainly it was a deeply compromised and damaging arrangement uh, in the long run 
in, in, in a similar way to like, you know, you look at what was positive about the Russian Revolution abroad and, and how that all ended up kind of going in a bad direction, too. It's like, oh, it's, it's so fucked up. Um, I mean, the 20th, <laughs> the 20th century was a disaster, right? Like, it's... Oh, one after another. I mean, the Soviet Union internally, I mean, it, I mean, it was pretty... Like, they developed their industry pretty well. Yeah, I mean, you what you it got... It was a progressive uh, in a lot of ways. It You got right socialism out of the Soviet Union, right? Like, it was a distorted yeah. kind of right socialism. I mean, it's not socialism the way Marxists talk about it, but it is what people think of as socialism now, and what some people thought of as socialism before. Like, uh, so, I guess it's a kind, it's a kind of socialism. Nah, pe- no, it's not. People think socialism is Sweden, and they think communism is Russia. Well, right. you gotta go to socialism before you go to communism, I mean... I think that whole debate is is so is so fun. It's so fun because all the terms have been emptied of content. Right. <laughs> that like you can you can just have an entire conversation with, with people. I think Thomas said this before. You're using all the same words and they're just floating signifiers. They don't fucking mean to you what they mean to the other person. Well, all of this stuff is why I put all my hope into North Korea. <laughs> the Juche idea will surely get us out of this postmodern malaise. And, com- and Comrade Bernie. Comrade Bernie yeah. and the Juche idea. Yeah. Why not? Why not? We threw in our lot behind the Soviet Union and Lenin for so long. What's wrong did, with did, Kim Il Young? That's, that's not a joke. That's, that's really not a joke. That's how that's the way a lot of people think. That's you know, even to an extent where people are, are doing like uh like solidarity, you know, and kind of just the urge to displace your political consciousness somewhere that's more important. You know what I mean? Like, it's hard to overstate that. So, like, I have a couple things to say. The first thing is, like, on North Korea, when I lived in Japan, I feel like I was I was a lot softer on North Korea just because I was scared they were going to shoot missiles at us. You know, like uh, being that, that that proximity to North Korea is like, well, you know, maybe we can work something out. Maybe it'll get better eventually. You know, maybe it's not so horrible. There was a lot of sort of like self-deception I, I, I did in terms of just like uh, just just not wanting a war. You know, I feel like that's not really an excuse for a lot of people abroad who... Who's, who, who find ways to convince themselves that North Korea is a great place. But, you know, you get a lot, a lot of really strange ideologies. Like, I, I don't think I ever talked about this before, but I, I knew this guy in university who was a Maoist and was convinced that Mao was actually a reincarnation of the Buddha who was a space alien who had come to Earth uh, to, to, to spread, you know, enlightenment to everybody. Like, this is the kind of... Like, I, I do not consider that to be significantly or like that significantly more just like brain rot than the people who are like North Korea is the vanguard of international revolution. <laughs> like those are both just really bizarre uh, perspectives. See, I could go with that. You know, I could I could definitely go with Mao Space Alien. I think that's pretty fucking good. In California, go to L.A. You could set up a fucking cult there. You could do well on that. Well, I, I, I mean, <laughs> if you if you're in California... You really see the pipeline from the new left to the new age. You know, there's so much similarity. And mm-hmm. it's devastating. You, you, once, you, once you see it, you can't unsee it. 
It's a right wing phenomenon. Like uh, new I, age I stuff. I, right, I, but, but new then, left. <laughs> well, then you think about yeah, the new left like prefigures this, and the new age in a way is like a way of subsuming those like revolutionary political horizons to more revolutionary ontological horizons. You know, and yeah. they're they're both ways of dealing with like alienated senses of agency and power and desires for change just alienated at different levels and i mean at least crystals and incense and like you know mao's a space alien you know if you buy their ontology they have a more plausible causal mechanism there if you're committed to materialism like you can't do that anymore like well and i i just think about like the number of new left people I've known or people who are students of new left people who were just like super into Heidegger. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. And like a lot of that happened in the, in the dissident movement in, in the Eastern Bloc too. Like there was a, you know, so much of that just like movement to the new age. Like uh, what was it? Václav Havel. Like he was a big new age guy. On the day he came over to, I think, the American Senate or the Congress and they they gave him some like Medal of Freedom and he gave this big speech and it was really important. The very day, I think, the and he talked about how the US was a beacon for freedom and all this stuff. I think the, the exact day the US had like gone into Honduras or Nicaragua and killed like 5,000 people, you know, <laughs> that's like... Chom- yep. I remember Chomsky saying it like it was literally at the exact day and he stood up there oh. and do it. So that'll tell you all you need to know about these goddamn uh, anti-communist heroes, communist anti-communists now here. But, you know, I, I feel like this is also of a piece with the thing that McNair was talking about, about the Euro communists becoming more liberal than the liberals. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's the same sort of degeneration. Yeah, like CPUSA wouldn't endorse Bernie in 2016 because Bernie wasn't a realistic candidate. Yeah, and the Blairites came out of that. You know, look what happened to the PCI. Like, it, it, it's just wild. Like, that is, an, that is another, like, enormous mindfuck. Like, that whole degeneration there. Lexi, will you read this section, Comintern and the Trotskyites? I sure will. Trotskyists, <laughs> the Trotskyists, ists, ites, Trotskyites, uh, that's nearly better. Trotskyites is, is almost uniformly uh, said in between wrecker and between three <laughs> sets of parentheses. Um, <laughs> the idea that became the Communist International began, as we have already seen in Chapter 4, with the anti-war wing of the Second International and with Lenin and Zinoviev's struggle within this left for an international split. Comintern was able to emerge because of the Bolshevik seizure of power in October 1917 and the survival of the revolutionary regime into 1919, when the first Congress of Comintern met. The result was that Comintern had a double character. On the one hand, it was an international of the anti-war left, attempting to redeem the honor of socialism after the ignominious political collapse of the Second International. On the other hand, it was a fan club for the Russian Revolution and its leaders. The fan club aspect became more prominent with the defeat of the Hungarian and especially 
the German and Italian revolutionary movements. On the one hand, the Russians had the prestige of victory and the material resources of state power. On the other, the Germans had lost some of their most eminent leaders, and the Westerners, in general, had failed where the Russians had succeeded. It was natural, for common turn, in these circumstances, to become a body that propagated the idea of the Russian Revolution as a universal model. In international strategy, this had two aspects. The first was that defense of the Soviet regime was the central touchstone of the Communist Party's internationalism, the idea that it might be appropriate to admit the defeat of a proletarian socialist policy in the face of the defeat of the Western revolutionary movements of 1919 through 20 and of peasant resistance in Russia and carry out a controlled retreat to capitalism was literally unthinkable to common turn. Whether such a retreat was a possible option is doubtful, but the inability of the communist parties to think it probably contributed to the fact that the degeneration of the Soviet regime into open tyranny brought the communist parties down with it. It also produced among the Trotskyists a bizarre body of competing theological dogmas about the Stalinist regime that provided ideology for the Trotskyists' endless splits. This is among some of the most devastating paragraphs in the book. Hit it, Lexi. Hit it. The idea that it might be appropriate to admit the defeat of a proletarian socialist policy in the, in the face of the defeat of Western revolutionary movements and peasant resistance and carried out a controlled retreat to capitalism was literally unthinkable to common turn. And, and then he said, well, maybe this was not, not possible. This is doubtful. But historical materialistly, if that's a word, that's just unquestionably true. Like... At, 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 true. Well, in terms of Marx's old theory of historical materialism, right? Kind of got to have the capitalist productive forces for communism to even be on the agenda. And so if you don't have that stuff yet, there's two ways to get them. Oh, you know, you overthrow capitalism in a block with, with you know, more developed capitalist countries and you can like peacefully, you know, import them at your own pace or, you know, whatever. You can piggyback on their productivity or whatever. You can piggyback on the capitalist productive forces, the developed capitalist productive forces of other powers. The other option you have, traditionally in, so in socialist theory, like b before this really became a thing, was you're fucked and isolated. And, and Marx and Engels like essentially warned about this in, and McNair discusses this in other parts of the book. When he talks about what would happen to an isolated regime from that point forward. Like, historical materialistly, you're supposed to have that stuff. The actual situation of the Leninists created basically an ideological pressure for a second option. This ended up being expressed in, you know, someone who understood historical materialism fairly well it was Nikolai Bukharin. He ended up writing the basis for socialism in one country. Originally, this was sort of like supposed to be, I mean, in a way, so, like a drawdown from the kind of revolutionary intensity that animated the whole Bolshevik project, you know, and, and Bukharin was no slouch. He was pushing for, if I recall correctly, you know, Bukharin wasn't like initially for the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. He knew damn well that without the expansion, the rapid expansion of the revolution, 
and the seizure of big capitalist productive forces, the revolution was fucking doomed. Um, he knew full well that. So when he was pursuing this, you know, research avenue, there's a, you know, there's a whiff of desperation about. And this ends up being subsumed into a less, in, in terms of the common turn, it's less right wing in the sense that they don't want to just draw down into like markets. No, they wanted to pursue a centrist option. And so Stalin capitalizes on this desire to continue the revolution within this country, comrade. We can't admit the defeat of the revolution, but yet we are in one country. That's the basic bounded choice model that leads you to Stalinist cultistry. It's, you know, it's bound up in the, in the isolation without capitalist productive forces. It's hard to explain not all the political errors that come out of this, because there's some unforced errors, there really are. But, like, that's the basic choice model you get. So, if there were Western revolutions, like, they couldn't probably plan the economy at this point in time. So... That's an additional complication that kind of invalidates the whole idea of a proletarian revolution at that point. Like, Yeah, like, they probably... So, what do you think would have happened? They probably would have done, like, a NEP type yeah. thing, like a more <laughs> like, efficient... Like, like a best, more case, b- best case scenario, they avoid World War One and develop cybernetics early. That would be it. I I, th- I think in I think in the short term they would have gone towards market socialism because that was a fairly influential ideology at that time. I, and and honestly, there was some legitimacy to that being the historical materialistly like best way of doing it. There was no like at that time better technology for dealing with a complex economy like distributionally like there just wasn't that didn't exist yet but the economy wasn't that complex in like 1914 they didn't have a billion products or 500 million that we have now like they probably only had like 10,000 probably core ones that could probably be planned by councils but if there was any remaining capitalism in the world like you know that capitalism would have developed you know at some point it like would have entered that like market like the the later stages of of capitalism that we know to some degree where that aspect of consumer choice becomes attractive and becomes a hallmark of freedom and probably in our communist bloc we would have had the same kind of crucivite envy you know (laughs) of the of capitalist success but what I'm trying to say is that, like, perhaps, let's say you got a, an amazing situation. The Russian revolution, the German revolution succeeded and the Russians went with it and the Italians went and the Spanish and the British and everybody had a revolution. And you had a big, massive European, Eurasian bloc. And they each did, like, national planning, say, and there was some internationalism with it. And they developed computers. And then by the right. 50s or 60s, there was no World War Two. <laughs> obviously there would be some fucking war somebody going to fight them would have been a class war we won the class war yay planning in russia worked reasonably well up until the 50s or 60s didn't it well until yeah, it, it did well and well in like, some things yeah it had like, a higher rate of growth i mean yeah but like yeah. oh what a cost yeah it had like, an extremely yeah. high rate of growth <laughs> yeah and extreme an extremely yeah like the human cost was greater than virtually anything else you, you can imagine I cannot imagine that if the Western Revolution succeed, you get, like, you know, 
Stalinist forced, like, quote-unquote, primitive socialist accumulation, right? Like it was, liter- it was literally unthinkable to Kautsky that that would be the case. So I, I guess I should revise what I, I said. Like, yes, market socialism was uh, quite influential at the time, but when you think back to it, Otto Neurath was trying to create a non-market-planned economy in uh, Bavaria at this time, the prestige of the German planned economy during the war was very high. There certainly were forces that also would have, could have tipped it towards a non-market outcome in Europe as, as a whole. Because, yeah, you know, it, it might have even helped that they weren't uh, doing just horrible corvée conscription of people at an enormous, <laughs> enormous human cost, right? Is uh, McNair's argument that the political forces would be different if there was uh, revolutions in the West and that's what would lead to a success of the world revolution? Yeah, this is, this is, this is to a great degree about like the reason that the Third International was able to be a Russian fan club. You know, if there were other competing models for success. Or if it, if it had just been multipolar, right? Yeah, they would they would have made the same fetish error of of doing oh this is these are the right revolutionary policies for your country because these are the only ones that worked before. It would have been like two or three different fan clubs in the same in the same house. <laughs> yeah, which is, which is like going back to the the sort of earlier historical discussion about class dictatorships. That's kind of like the the model that McNair envisions, right? That, like, you have competing tendencies within the class dictatorship. It it becomes a class class regime, but it does not become one without differing views of what happens. We can see, like, today how the technology we have really, really, like, makes non-market planned economies much more viable. But I wouldn't want to write off entirely the possibility that the entire ingenuity of the Russian, of of the Soviet Union and the rest of Western Europe couldn't have, in a more sort of free and open society, come up with a better solution. Uh, It's it's impossible to say. Yeah, and also, you know, political factors are kind of important. And also, you know, you have better access to raw materials in uh, different areas in the world. And so, you know, that increases your efficiency. So that probably would also help. You don't get all the German scientists going to the USA, you know. That's it. And Ar- Ireland, Ireland has all the potatoes. You know, you boys better, you better be nice to us. There are no chips for you guys. No fries. You're not nice to the patties. Yeah, yeah, and also they could probably afford that really high rate of growth, considering that um, if the means of production in the West are a lot better you know you can afford uh putting more aside for growth if your output is very high like a more absolute quantity yeah planning did work you know reasonably well at high cost of course for a bunch of like the essentials it wasn't until later on really like after world war ii that well i mean honestly there was all kinds of terrible things happening inside the ussr and they were fit they were like because of how concentrated it was the errors that they made were some of the most catastrophic in history because they're so concentrated. Like, and it's, it's hard to overstate that. The point is that like, if there was other revolutions, 
it would have affected the consciousness of the third international. It would like the Bolsheviks would have had to compete maybe with, you know, other tendencies that were corrupt in different ways, maybe in tendencies that were corrupt in the same way. I guess it could have led to the same thing, but it probably, you know, wouldn't be the kind of stuff we're dealing with right now where people have like the single revolutionary vision. I have a hard time imagining that like, a third international that includes people like the Austro-Marxists would have gone the same direction. Yeah. Like, there's just, just really different point of view. You know, you have people in Europe at that time who had sort of different ideas of how planning might be arranged and were more sort of conscious of, like, the epistemological and methodological problems that you would run into that could have made a, a positive contribution if it hadn't been like, you know, this kind of society where if you're if you're an intelligent, free thinking person, you're likely going to be shot, you know, um, to this day, the culture of the left still bears this impact. And you might say the incentives are there beforehand, but this does provide just a powerful ideology for doing it. I mean, I was kicked out of a like pluralist McNairist project, you know, quote pluralist, you know like during the recording of this series you know i helped start cosmonaut magazine with donald parkinson right and it was more or less like acceptable that there we had some sort of you know there was there was something that went on there's clearly some personal elements to it i don't understand it entirely cuz i couldn't communicate but there like the political norms were there where it could be framed as cutting out like a wrecker for disagreement not for sabotage, but for having a similar framework and disagreeing on some points. That was, like, pretty acceptable. Most most of the people that are participating in that, I mean, they didn't, like, disassociate from that. They didn't go, oh, shit, that's, you know, wow, that's bad, you know? We gotta get out of here. No, it's sort of an accepted part of left political culture. This happened while I was recording this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's heavy. <laughs> I designed their website, by the way. It's a cool website. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I did. I did it for free. <sighs> yeah. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Chesters, and Night of the Purple Moon by Sunra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, and Swampside Chats. <laughs> <laughs>